Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And joining me for a long-awaited quick game, Mark Schofield. We're in July. We have the NFL supposedly looming within the next six to eight weeks. We're going to assume that it is. Have some fun with it. Hopefully you'll have some fun. Get your mind off some things. Um, Always good to see you, Mark. Matt, always great to see you. Always great to catch up before and after the show. And yes, we do have some football. Uh, We uh, have some fantasy stuff to talk about. I will try not to talk too much about my nose dive that is currently underway in the Scott Fishbowl. As with every Scott Fishbowl, seven or so picks in, I realize that I just don't know what I'm doing. And that's the feel that I get with every Scott Fishbowl. But it's always a fun event. Always great to be a part of that and, you know, contribute to the charity causes that Scott Fish and others like the SFB Potathon organize each year. The, the guys over at the SFB Potathon raised, at this point, I think over $40,000. Yeah. Um, that's going between, I believe, the Humane Society and the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, I was, I've, I've been on that every year. They've done it. I was on again this this go around it was a great time as always the skies over there sound everybody do such a good job of that so we got some good stuff to talk about and i'm excited to get it yeah it's definitely fantastic that they're uh that they're doing that so you know um we have some questions here we're gonna probably gonna go through a dozen to 15 or so questions and while i didn't alert mark to this this is the quick game things happen fast i just thought maybe we'd alternate these questions and go from there is that okay with you Okay. That works for me. I need to get my buzzer, though. Hold on one second. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know what? Me too. So, you know, the if you haven't seen the quick game or heard the quick game before, basically the deal is this, is that we we give each other usually two to three minutes. Um, or is it a minute or three minutes? I forget. It's an... um, we started with a minute, but I see this is the off season. I think we can do two minutes, right? Yeah, let's do a couple of these. I might go long. Let's do and two. It, let's do in two off. and four this time. We'll do two okay. and four minutes. And basically, that's how long we have to answer a question. A, um, basically, a timeout gives us four minutes, and we each get three timeouts, and then a, another one gives us two minutes. The normal ones give us two minutes. So that's kind of how it works. And we try to go through as many questions as possible. I didn't give uh, a whole slew of questions this time. Usually, we try to, I try and list about 20 or 30 and see how many we can get through. Um, realizing how long we've been doing this, that we usually get to about 15 to 20. I put, I think I put 15 in here. So to start off with, oh, let me get my timer here. There we go. Starting off, let's go ahead and roll with, you know, the most obvious question that we should ask Mark Schofield, who right. may, may feel like he's he's overmatched in, in, in the Scott Fishbowl, which I think most people are, because um, it's a great event. Um, but one thing he's not overmatched with is quarterback analysis or New England analysis. So let's combine the two, chocolate and peanut butter. Here we go. Cam Newton in New England. Who benefits most from Cam being in New England? I'm going to preface this answer by saying it is, without a doubt, the worst podcast answer I will ever give. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> and are you ready for it, everybody? Yes. Because the person who benefits most is me. Okay, it's me. Let's be honest about it, right? Because I get to go from covering Tom Brady of the New England Patriots to potentially covering Cam Newton with the New England Patriots. And I've been looking forward to covering the post-Tom Brady New England Patriots for a while now just because I thought it would make for an interesting storyline and perhaps something fun to discuss. But now I get to do with a guy that won an MVP a couple of years ago and could be a fascinated fit into the post-Tom Brady New England Patriots. And so off the top, look, I get to benefit from it, and I just wanted to throw that out there. But looking at this offense and looking at what it could be conceptually, I think 
Rex Burkhead and James White are players that benefit much probably to the detriment, I think, of Sony Michelle. And the Sony Michelle experiment has been wavering on the verge of success or failure um, for the past two seasons. And I think last year you saw the importance of James Devlin to that Patriots offense and Sony Michelle in particular because he looked lost trying to run behind other guys. I think with Newton, you're looking at a more outside zone, wide zone, heavy type of offense you know they're going to try to incorporate newton's athletic ability and his threat as a runner so they're going to want to use those designs that's not sony michelle's bag it never seemed to translate for him outside zone wide zone i don't know if it was a processing thing or a feel thing or if it just wasn't there for him so i think burkhead we just saw them restructure his deal that's a sign that they're probably going to hold on to him and white that favors them and i think as far as the receiving core goes i'm looking at Nikhil harry I'm looking at a guy that one of his best strengths as a guy coming out of Arizona State was those contested catch 50-50 back shoulder throws. Newton does that so well. Um, the violence, the the placement, the torque, the velocity, all that stuff. Um, so I think Nikhil Harry, as far as a receiver goes, um, stands to benefit. And a guy that also I think maybe has a bit of a detrimental effect to him, Josh McDaniels. And not in the sense that – you know, obviously, I think the idea to scheme up stuff for Cam Newton is great. But if McDaniels could turn Jarrett Stidham into a bona fide NFL starter and quarterback this year, he was going to write his ticket again. That was going to be his way back into being a head coach, right? Because this is what you want. The guy that can turn around the young quarterback. If he does it with Newton, nobody's going to care. Yeah. So, listen, I mean, that's – um. Let's see if I can get this timer to stop. <laughs> There we I, go. it's kind of mood music it is fans. kind of it is there we go i think it finally stopped but yeah i like those points you know and and you're right i i, I was gonna say right away it's gonna benefit the run game so you did that you did that well and you and the two and the one guy I specifically thought was james white so that's my my real answer would be james white but for the sake of us exploring other opportunities here let's go a little different i'm gonna say devin asiasi it's gonna benefit oh. because the way this is gonna work is that with what you described with wide zone with the fact that you're gonna have you know the defense having to pay extra attention to cam the fact that they're going to have to pay extra attention to the running back and that mesh. Well, you look at all the college offenses and, and you look at including the college offenses in Philadelphia and in Indianapolis and probably soon to be in, in the Chargers area. And what do they like to do? They like to pull the ball, quick throw up the seam. Yep. Who's, you know, is that a hard route to run for a rookie tight end? Not at all. What's Devin Asiasi's strength? The ability to be quick up the seam and make the first man miss after yep. the catch. And he's a good guy after the catch. So I think this actually benefits using Asiasi in this particular range of the field. And we might actually get some decent tight end play out of a rookie in New England just for the fact that he can do that well and, and, you know, it doesn't mean that he's going to be a top 10 tight end for fantasy users, but he could be, you know, a, a flex play. Might be a guy who has some big games like, you know, six to, se you know, six to seven times out of the year and big enough that you may want to consider him and that the New England fans will be excited about him. Yeah, that sound you hear is me adding him to my draft queue in this codfish bowl. <laughs> there you go. He's I'm yeah. I'm in a Wait, no Matt, don't drop this episode just yet. Yeah, okay? Not yet, not yet, not yet. Yeah, I'm a, you gotta listen, keep this one on draft. Right. I'm in a fifty round draft with a uh, a football diehards draft, IDP and all that stuff. And 
I haven't even. I think I'm in round nine. I haven't picked the tight end yet. So, um, so go. he might be on the list for round 35. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how far it goes. But right now, the way some people are picking rookies, it's it's kind of amazing. So it happens every year. Everybody like loses their mind for rookies, yeah. and I, I think it's just because of the natural progression of things where yeah. we just get out of the draft. We're so familiar with these guys. It's like recency bias in a sense. And look, I just drafted Joe Burrow, so like, I'm as guilty as everybody else with this. But we do it; we do yeah. it every year. So it should be fun. Maybe at the end of this, we'll compare the teams that we've drafted. Even though I'm not doing Scott Fishbowl, and it's not, it's not anything against the Scott Fishbowl. It's a wonderful opportunity, and I, and it's always a pleasure that they reach out. It's just I'm always just about done with everything. This is my vacation time, so I try yeah. to make sure that I'm, you know, yeah, because it's work, it, is. it is, it is work. So, but listen. Uh, next question, um, you know, what do you got there for us, Mark? Well, next question is this, and it's perfect timing to ask this question. Matt, what factors are you taking into account with Antonio Brown potentially signing this year and contributing to a team like the Seattle Seahawks? Yeah, and I, I think that the factors are really the suspension. How long is the suspension going to be? And, you know, listen to somebody like Drew Davenport, who is an attorney, works at Football Guys and, and does a really good job on on the Football Guys private message board kind of outlining for us some of the possibilities with that. You know, he seems to think that because we haven't heard much about Antonio Brown in the news since he had some of the pretrial interventions that were going on, that they he thinks there's a possibility that Brown will have a minimal suspension or maybe even time served if he's allowed back onto the field. Um, and because they will account for the, for the the likelihood that a lot of this was a lot of his behavior will be attributed to mental health issues. And if that's the case, then we should expect him to probably be signed to a team within the next two weeks to, to, to two to four weeks. And if he's signed by early August, then to me, He's a guy that is they're going to plan on him being a part of their starting lineup. They expect him to be their primary option to learn the offense fast enough and for him to be as productive as they you would expect from a guy who was one of the league's leading receivers in in um, you know, Pittsburgh before everything went south for him. Um, now, if they I think if the team thinks that he's going to serve like a four to eight game suspension, then they might sign him in mid to late August um, and decide that, you know, he's going to be a part of our team, but no sense in like giving him tons of reps where we've got younger guys who are going to need it and, and he can learn it and he can, as long as he's doing what he needs to do off the field during his suspension, he'll be ready and we can get him into the mix as a contributor and then maybe take over as a starter down the stretch. And then I think if a team signs him like last week, like after waivers, you know, just before yeah. the season starts, they're probably expecting an eight to 12 game suspension, um, knowing that maybe he can help them out down the play for a playoff run as a contributor. And so I think those are the things that you have to consider when you're thinking about, um, you know, our man, Antonio Brown. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's pretty pretty good there in terms of the timing of it. What I want to kind of focus on, Matt, is the idea of him in Seattle, um, which is obviously the team that he's been linked most frequently with um, Antonio Brown a lot. I know a lot of people have sort of floated the idea of Tampa Bay, um, but they seem to have shut that idea down. I don't know if Bruce Arians wants to go down back that road. 
You're talking about the Seattle Seahawks and the team we often associate with ball control and running the football and play action and stuff like that. This is a team that last year ran 11 personnel almost more than anybody else in the league. They ran it 73% of the time. Now, if you're looking at a potential offense that has DK Metcalf at the X, Tyler Lockett in the slot, and now Antonio Brown is your Z, like it's hard to put together an 11 personnel package better than that. And Greg Olson up the scene? And Greg Olson up the scene? Like, if you're getting anything close to what we've seen from him in his best days in Carolina, like, it's hard to look put together a better 11 than that. So that idea is perfect. And if you look at Seattle sort of conceptually, if they do sign him but they sort of want to ease him in, you know, they're worried about him learning the playbook or there is a suspension, you've got options like Philip Dorsett. You know, that could be that sort of Z-type guy for a while. And if they did want to go 12, you know, Will Disley has done some good things for them. Jake Hollister has done some good things for them. So they could sort of get by early in the season while waiting for him if there is a suspension scenario. And to the timing of this, as I mentioned, this was an interesting timing for it. In my division, in my Scott Fishbowl, he just went off the board in the sixth round. Like people are drafting him with good reason because he's a guy that if you take a flyer on him and things pan out for the best might win you a league. And it's worth it, particularly in the mid to late rounds. When you're looking at guys that are also on the board, like the, you know, the DJ Moores of the world or some of the other receivers that people are drafting late or Juju Smith Schuster, when you don't know what you're going to get from Rossburg or James Washington, or, you know, even some of the Patriots receivers, Muhammad Sanu. It's worth it. It's worth the flyer. Yeah, good time. Good timing too. One second left on that one, but uh, yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm with you because I mean I think that the other thing is is that if, if this may seem like a weird comparison, but stylistically in terms of how they play and what they do well, I would argue that Russell Wilson is just a shorter, better Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, yeah. when, you, when it comes to like being able to buy time, the scramble and, drill stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's he Russell Wilson's the best scramble drill quarterback in the league, I think. Um, you know, or I would argue that. And I think that with Antonio Brown, obviously he's got, you know, he has plenty of experience with Roethlisberger. So it's a terrific fit. You can understand why for two years and for almost two years now, um, Russell Wilson has been lobbying for uh, Antonio Brown. Um, So let's talk about practice. You know, the NFL's restricting it, you know, and restricting it to beat reporters um, to the idea that they won't be able to observe practice. So what advice do you give fans and and fantasy players about, you know, the information that's going to be shared from beat writers this summer, considering that it may not be firsthand? Yeah, this is a a fascinating question. And it's something that, you know, I struggle with myself because I'm not somebody that goes to practices. Um, So I always try to take even before any sort of restrictions that are being restrictions that are being put in place because of coronavirus. I try to take all that stuff with a, a huge grain of salt because the teams are controlling the information flow to begin with. There are only sort of limited times before these restrictions that you could observe, that you could send out information. You couldn't put out videos. You couldn't put out things about personnel packages and things like that. So the information flow was already restricted to begin with. And then when you add in the layer that now you're going to have even more restrictions on it, less information, and we can be honest about the fact that not every beat writer has a X's and O's type, you know, kit to their bag where they can like tell you like, Oh, this is their 11 personnel package and they're running mesh mesh and they're running bills and they're doing all this stuff. So I think you really have to be 
you know, very critical, very sensitive, very careful with the information you're going to rely on because it's going to be so restricted, more so than usual. The teams do a very good job of restricting the information to begin with. They don't want anything getting out. And if we're in a scenario where you might get like one preseason game, they're going to do it even more, you know, because they won't have those opportunities to put film out there. So, yeah, I think you've got to be really careful with it. That was my phone, by the way, just someone trying to call as opposed to the buzzer. So I wasn't okay. trying to give you anything good there. I just no, had to no, turn I'm it good. on. I'm good. Okay. So, so yeah, I listen, I, I just look at it this way. The tough part about beat writers is that there is a very wide range of skill level yeah. when it comes to that. And also a very wide range of specialties. Some beat reporters are great writers. And that's exactly what they're there for is to, to really, you know, write entertaining information. The fact whether it's right or wrong, the paper doesn't really care as much as it's entertaining. I've I've certainly had people tell me in this industry that they don't care so much about whether they're right or wrong as long as it's entertaining. I've heard that, and that's fine, you know, um, because in sports you're expected to be entertained. Nobody's expecting you to be right unless you start getting deeper and deeper and deeper into analysis, and then people start to have that expectation. And we're when we're in the fantasy sphere, we're in the football analysis sphere. We're in that deep end of the pool where, you know, people are expecting a little bit more accuracy or at least logic behind the ideas that are being taken over the entertainment value. So you have those people on that end of the pool and that's fine. But then you also have people who are very good at that end of the pool at getting information from other people, you know, getting talking to anonymous sources and the people actually being like trustworthy or actually getting people to be quoted, you know, and, and talk about those things or and having those relationships with key people who know what they're talking about. And then you have people who may be just good at watching the tape and looking at what the action says and they just say, whatever the words are being said, I don't care what's coming out of that person's mouth because what's happening on the field here makes sense. And the problem is, is when you take all those things, not everyone's good at all of those tools. Some people are really good at one, maybe two. Very rare people have all four tools in their bag. Um, so as a result of that, when when I look at beat writers, even in a good year, and they start to have, they start to make analysis about what happens on the field, I always kind of take it with a grain of salt anyway. So I'm actually kind of looking at this as a contrarian type of thing and thinking, the fact that beat writers don't know, it's going to keep the noise level lower and the volume a little bit lower. And so when, you know, basically if you play at ultra conservative, just look to see what happens on the field and, and, but look at rookies as kind of a, a low end, you know, new players who aren't supposed to be a big part or rookies that aren't just keep that, you know, conservative and you'll be fine. Yeah. I think that's a, a smart approach. Um, we're all, we're going to get to it in the next question too. We're all sort of trying to figure out this sort of new world we're living in. And, you know, fantasy football might be on the bottom run of things we're concerned about, but it's what we do. So we got to, we got to help people out. And to that point, Matt, next question here, considering that everything about planning for COVID is so fluid, are you taking a blanket approach to your expectations with rookie production or is that a sort of overrated, overrated reaction? Yeah. And I think that what I, as I ended with that question, the last question, you know, I would say rookies who are mid to late round guys who aren't supposed to be a part of the team. I'm taking more of a blanket reaction that they need to prove it on the field before I actually 
count on them to be major factors this year. But guys who are drafted earlier, I'm not taking that blanket approach. Only because, you know, we've seen guys like Odell Beckham, A.J. Brown, who are, you know, not going to, not big parts of training camp, got hurt. Really, all they were doing was really studying because they couldn't really work out. And they ended up being the best rookie receivers of their class, you know, in a, at a position where, you know, you're having to understand the defense and read and get rapport with your quarterback and all those things that we talk about as factors. And basically everybody wrote them off and they ended up being the best players of that year. So to me, it's, it's more about what's the level of talent, what's the potential fit, and are they getting on the field? And if they're going to get on the field, then I'm going to give them the I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to be okay. What What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a very smart approach to it because, you know, with the fact we might not get a full training camp, with the fact we might not get any or at least most of a preseason game slate of games, you know, those fringe guys that are drafted late to begin with won't have the opportunity to stick on rosters. So it's hard to really put a lot of faith in those guys. The guys that you know, obviously went first round or, you know, early day two guys, you can be pretty confident they're going to get opportunities. I think something to keep in mind, though, is the coaching staff and the fit, you know, because there are going to be players that will be given opportunities to do what they can do, right? That they're drafted to teams where they're drafted to an offense with a guy like a Frank Reich or Josh McDaniels or Sean McVay who's going to see what these guys can do and put them in opportunities to be successful. Then you might get some more old school type, you know, coaches that when they have a rookie, they're going to want them to do it their way. And it might be more of a learning curve that's going to be steep to begin with, made even steeper by the world we're living in. So I think you do sort of have to keep stuff like that in mind. Like a guy like Jonathan Taylor is somebody I look at. Frank Reich, Reich has done a great job at, you know, putting together packages and putting together personnel groups and trying to find favorable matchups. And you might think, oh, stepping into an offense like that, like it might be tough for a rookie. Well, I would go the other way on that. Like if you're looking at Jonathan Taylor staring you at the face in a draft, I think you could be comfortable knowing that Frank Rice is going to find ways to get him involved. You know, it's an offense that they're going to do some things that might resemble, you know, some of the college game stuff that's going to be familiar for him. And he was running behind an offensive line and then a run game scheme that was very diverse in terms of the blocking up front. So he's a scenario where, yeah, he's a rookie, but you might feel pretty comfortable about drafting him given the fit and given his background. Love it. Love it. So, yeah, you know, moving forward, Patrick Mahomes signed the 10 year deal. You know, we're obviously happy for him. So, yeah. You know, we helped. Yeah. We helped. Hey, yeah, in our little way. In our little in our way, little we way. sure did. So, you know, not as much as he did, but no. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, you know, we we helped kind of like, yeah, we kind of helped like how the Remora eel basically like got a little bit of crumbs, you know, away from you know turning into bacteria on the shark. Okay, so right. so as that big great white shark is traveling through the ocean there um, of football. I'm not so interested in Patrick Mahomes in the story when it comes to Chief signing the deal. I'm a little more intrigued with Sammy Watkins signing a one-year extension. Um, and I think it's because most have abandoned any expectation that he's ever going to be the Sammy Watkins we expected him to be when he was drafted in the first round by Buffalo. But I'm wondering if we've lost patience too early. I think we might have in a, in a certain sense because when you look at you know this Chiefs offense as it's constructed – 
you know, obviously you've got speed with Hill and Hardman. You know, you've got Travis Kelsey. You know, we'll talk about somebody working stuff up the seams and what he can do from the tight end position. Every offense needs that guy. You know, that guy that's going to be, I don't know if nuance is the right word, but the more savvy. You know, the guy that can sit down, that can find creases, that can find soft spots and zones. The guy that you know, is going to be the afterthought from a defense's perspective. I often try to th- put myself into the minds of a defensive coordinator. If you're game plan and how to stop Kansas City, Watkins might be, you know, fourth or fifth on your list of worries, but that's the guy that's going to burn you when it's a third and seven or the guy that's going to make the big play in a Super Bowl when nobody's expecting it. You know, so I, I think we have might have we might have given up on Watkins too early. And I will also say this when Mahomes signed his deal like everybody else, I was given the assignment to go write about it. So I rewatched a lot of Mahomes from last year. When they got into some critical moments, it was Watkins he was looking for on like third and six and third and seven. It was Watkins who was left alone, who was ignored by the defense as they're so concerned with Hardman, you know, doing what he's doing or Hill doing what he's doing. You know, they're rotated safeties to those guys and away from Sammy Watkins. And so I think you ignore Watkins like these defenses have done at your own peril. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think that Sammy Watkins Listen, this is the crazy thing about Sammy Watkins. Everybody thinks of him like you described him, savvy, you, you know, someone who can find those open spots, what he can do after the catch, but he can also play outside for you and he can get deep outside and we've seen all this and we expected him to become this masterful route runner. And last year at the end of the year he's talking about yeah, until last offseason, I drank every night and got drunk almost every night. I really didn't learn how to run routes until this past year. I haven't really been really studying how to become a, a pro-caliber route runner until last year. I reshaped my body last year and like started finally figuring out how to train so that my you know maybe I could get rid of these foot issues, which he didn't have any foot issues. He had a hamstring issue. But he didn't have a foot issue, which has been the chronic problem with him. So that's actually real positive. Yep. And the fact that all these changes were made and he's like several seasons into his career and he hasn't tapped his potential yet, I'm still excited about him because it's like you, you've you seen him have flashes of being a top-tier wide receiver and even have a season, season and a half where he's been one, but he hasn't like really applied himself. And he whipped Jalen Ramsey in the opener. He yeah. whipped him. Now, granted, he played a lot from the slot, and Ramsey covered him some there, and it's hard for any cornerback to cover anybody in the yeah. slot, even a top one. But he he showed some stuff, you know, in that opener, and he showed it in the in the late, you know, in the late stretch run of the season in the postseason. And I think that I would much rather have him than Nicole Hardman if Tyreek Hill's healthy. Nicole Hardman, to me, is still a year or two away from showing anything that even, like, other than the great speed and a skill right. after the catch, I think I think Watkins is a very valuable player. No, I think that's exactly right. Like, you know, especially when you look at the fact that the health issues and the fact that he's finally getting it, like – He's a late bloomer, perhaps. And I think you got to take advantage of that. So I, I think that's really well said, Matt. Uh, next question here. We're going to talk a little bit more scheme and personnel stuff, which is always something that Matt and I both love to do. The Buccaneers, the Eagles, the Vikings, the Browns, and the Colts, they will be using a lot of 12 personnel. And for most of those teams, it will be their base personnel. 
pick one or two of these teams and explain which receiver, which runner, or which tight end wins or loses on the basis of production. Okay, so let's start off with winners, and we're going to start with the Buccaneers. And to me, the winner to me is clearly Chris Godwin still. Like, I think a lot of people are thinking, well, Chris Godwin had a career year last year with James Winston. How much better can it really get? Now there's going to be even more weapons, you know, because they're going to go base 12. And now that means Gronkowski is going to be in the mix. You already have Mike Evans, who's, you know, maybe their leading yardage getter and touchdown getter. And what about O.J. Howard now in the mix with all of this? So you have four guys here. Here's the thing. Julian Edelman, Wes Welker, even when you had Hernandez and Gronkowski, Welker was often either a top 12, top um, 15, or top 24 receiver during those three years where that 12 personnel was really in effect. And Chris Godwin is that guy who can play in the slot, play outside. They're going to split and detach those tight ends outside, put Evans and and Godwin inside, get them in mismatches. So you're going to still see the mismatches. And then on top of it, we have to understand that Godwin is fast. He can win deep on the outside. He's a number one receiver who just happens to be playing a number two role in on this team. He may be a better red zone option than Evans. If you really watch their games, Godwin is much better at earning position to set up and catch tight window 50-50 balls. And Winston went to him more often than with greater success, I bet. I have to, I'll have to ask Dwayne um, McFarlane a little bit more yeah. on the stats for that. But from what I've seen anecdotally, he had more success the past two years than Evans did in terms of technique and, and conception and execution on those particular types of situations. So he's the winner. I think the a team where maybe... Uh, another winner, let's go with the Cleveland Browns and we'll say, you know, as, and I'm going to take my time, time out in the middle of this. So we'll go. Oh, I already had, had you queued up for it. See, there you go. See, yeah, I knew you would go. There, see, so see, yeah. we're simpatico. There we go. So, so, you know, with Cleveland, I think another winner in this is going to be Austin Hooper. I know a lot of people are saying it's going to be David Njoku, but you saw why Njoku basically knows. He sees the writing on the wall. He knows that Harrison Bryant is gonna like um, be a threat to his job. I think the free the agent his agent knows that, and the agent was hoping let's see if the Browns will deal him, and maybe the Browns will deal him soon. And again, when when a team says we have no plans in trading him, well, that's also posturing to say we value him. So if you come with the right offer. yeah, we'll think about it, but we want you to know we value and we're not going to give him away for a song. Though, if you actually look at David Njoku's track record, it's been inconsistent enough that they probably will end up giving him away for less than what they would like if they do trade him. And and when you look at what Austin Hooper does, he does things that Matt Ryan is not good at. Matt Ryan is not a good red zone quarterback, in my opinion. I've uh, Just from what I've watched over the past 10 years, he's decent, but he's not great. Like, And yes... 50-50 throws are not the most efficient types of throws out there. But when you, he's a guy that misses his first read a lot in the red zone. I, I, I've i I've seen him miss wide open guys frequently. It happened last year. It's happened the year before. You never see Julio, and Julio Jones isn't a great 50-50 catch guy in terms of the fade route, as weird as that sounds that you watch it and he just doesn't, he's either just out of practice doing it because Ryan doesn't throw him 
or he just doesn't know how to get position or time his leaps with some of these. He's much better as a route runner than he is, you know, uh, you know, breaking in or breaking out or breaking back as opposed to earning position and rebounding, which just seems crazy. It's like having a giraffe saying that he's not good at picking fruit off of the high branches of trees. So, right. you know, but you you look at this, Austin Hooper's very good at that. And that was what his hallmark was at Stanford. And they didn't use him enough in the, in that capacity. Baker Mayfield's going to use him that way. Case Keenum could use him that way. I think in the fact that he can block, he'll be able to slip out and they'll use him in ways where he'll probably slip out of the formation and they expected him to block or just have him match up against somebody that, you know, a more athletic player will be on Joku and the wide receivers and he'll wind up with the mismatch and wind up winning. I think I could see seven to 10 touchdowns for um, Austin Hooper in this particular year, in addition to a good five to 700 yards. So I think he wins. And, you know, do I have any time left to give a, to give a loser? Yeah, go for it. I'll give a quick loser. And I think the quick loser in this, in this mess here of what we're looking for, I'm just going to say, I'll say in Joku, just because I think Harrison Bryant is a, is a more promising player as a receiver than what Njoku has shown overall. Njoku was an athletic wonder kind, but he hasn't built up his game. And the and the Browns have put notice put the notice out there that that they plan to move on from him at some point, I think. And and, and Bryant is so good at finding openings in the open in the zones and finding that second window or that third window after the first route um, first break doesn't come open and he's good after the catch. I think that this guy is going to end up actually being the you know a really good threat for the Browns, and that'll allow Hooper to stay in and block a little bit more once they make that switch. But this year, Hooper winner, Njoku loser. How about you, Mark? Who, where are you at with these guys? And we'll give yeah, you four. I mean, first of all, those were those were all great answers. Um, I think Godwood is is somebody that is going to benefit big time from having Tom Brady in town. Um, I think Njoku as a loser makes a ton of sense. I'm going to talk about um, two of the teams we haven't mentioned yet in that question. First, the Philadelphia Eagles. And, you know, thinking about the Eagles conceptually and the direction they seem to be moving in, which is more of a downfield passing game, more of a vertical passing game, you wouldn't think that a vertical passing game, perhaps based heavily out of 12, would be something that would benefit a running back. But I think Miles Sanders is somebody to watch in the year ahead. Because when you think about the opportunity to have speed on the outside, guys like Jalen Ragor, with guys like a Marquise Goodwin, you know, even John Hightower, the kid from Boise State who they drafted late. I know that kind of goes in the face of what we talked about earlier with rookies that get drafted late, but that's a player to watch, particularly with the injuries with Alshon Jeffrey and Deshaun Jackson's recent incidents that we've seen on the timeline. Um, you know, you might see more of John Hightower this year. And so – if you're talking about getting vertical downfield with those two tight ends, it's going to create space underneath. And Miles Sanders showed last year an ability to be a threat as a receiver out of the backfield. It seems like it's going to be his show as the running back in this offense. They will be able to, you know, Doug Peterson, to create some extremely favorable matchups for him. You know, there's a reason why he's got a very high ADP right now in various you know formats, including the Scott Fishbowl, it's because what people are seeing from him. I mean, he's got an ADP right now of 18, which means he's coming off the board in the second round in the Scott Fishbowl. There's a reason for that. Format of the game, sure, but people can see what the Eagles are going to be able to do for him. So I think Miles Sanders is one winner. Another winner, I think, is Irv Smith Jr. 
you know, when you look at Minnesota right now, and I know it's going to be different with Kevin Stefanski now in Cleveland um, for all the reasons that Matt talked about with Hooper. But this is a team that ran 12 personnel a ton, you know, right up there with Philadelphia last year. They're going to do a lot more of that again because you're looking at Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen, two guys that are basically Z or slot type guys. You know, so you're going to want to have them with a reduced split from the tight end on their side of the field. Kyle Rudolph, yes, looks to be still a good player, but Irv Smith is now going to be in that second year. You look for tight ends to have that sort of growth in year two. It's a tough position to make the adjustment from. You know, even somebody that was in a pro-style offense under Sarkeesian at Alabama, I'm looking for big things from him in year two. So I think Irv Smith is going to be a winner as they look to – you know, run more of the 12 personnel like they did last year and try to get him involved more, you know, given that you've got Justin Jefferson stepping in for Stephon Day. So those are the two guys that I've ID'd as winners. Yeah, I love those. And I love the Irv Smith one most of all, because when you watched him perform in the moments that they actually targeted him, he looked so fluid as a receiver. He looked every yeah. bit the receiver that he was at Alabama and a little bit more, um, you know, and the blocking was excellent. And he was a good, I thought he was one of the better blockers in the class last year, even yeah. though he seems like more of a, you know, more of an F type of tight end or like a, a, a Y who's like kind of a move guy. He's very technically sound as a blocker. And you can see yeah. that he gets it. He, he eliminates the air. He's able to move his feet. He can turn guys. He's very technically sound at the line of scrimmage, what you'd expect from a son of a, of a longtime veteran tight end and Irv Smith senior. And it, you know, so from that angle, I think it makes perfect sense in how you described it. Sanders is an interesting one to me because I think he's worth a second round pick as a two, as a number two tight end. I don't think he's going to have the number one upside. And the only reason I say that is that he still struggled against zone, uh, against running zone concepts as opposed to yeah. gap concepts. And so I don't think that's going to go away this year. It may, he may get better at it. Certainly Ronald Jones got better at it last year. Um, so if they, and I don't think they're going to go strictly gap, you, you know, right. within Philadelphia. And that means that there's this little guy that, you know, PFF and myself actually agree on, which is Boston oh Scott, you oh know. Boy. And so Boston Scott is a guy who, you know, is a very good zone runner. And and I think he could end up showing up as kind of a, a an oddly good red zone threat and, and change of pace yeah. guy who might just take a little bit of the ceiling off of Miles Sanders. But he's worth the pick where Mark's stating where he is and certainly a guy that does have that upside if he does catch on with the zone running, you know, early enough. So, you know, listen, we can't have a show with Mark Schofield and not ask you about Tom Brady. So I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at Gronkowski coming back. I'm looking at 12 personnel. I'm looking at Tom Brady at running practices. You know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that may not be the smartest thing, but, you, you know, he's taking his chances because, you know, listen, he's a Patriot. He's going to make sure that he's he's a Patriot at heart. He's going to make sure that they they have that competitive edge in every possible way that they can. So you look at Brady and he's got his guys together. They're working out and you have Evans and Godwin. This is the best collection of skill talent that he's ever had, I think. As much as I love Gronkowski and Hernandez, you know, O.J. Howard and Gronkowski are up there. You know, yep. they're up there. I like Hernandez better than, than than Howard, but it's close. And then you have the best two receivers he's ever had. I mean, yes, he's had Moss, who's, you know, who's a, better than both of those guys. 
But those two guys together, I'd rather have those two guys than just Randy Moss, if you ask me, like uh, on a field. Like, and I, 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 that's hard for me to say, but I think that I'd rather have this combo of guys than what New England's ever put out there. And Ronald Jones was like getting better. Like he, mm-hmm. I'm, since I'm actually trying to pick him in the ninth round of a draft right now in a fantasy league, just because I, I kind of like that he will be the recipient. And while I like Keyshawn Vaughn, I think that, you know, this is interesting. So could we, with all of this in place, when Tom Brady thrown for 5,000 yards and 38 touchdowns with this type of grouping in the past, and even when he had Martellus Bennett and Gronkowski, he was threatening 5,000, even in their injury-shortened years during that time together. Could we expect a record pace for as long as the season is played? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. And... The points you made, Matt, about the talent around him are 150% true. Like, and then you could add Tyler Johnson in there, who I still will not give up on. I just, I just <laughs> like Tyler Johnson too much. But putting all of that to the, to the side for a second, Tom Brady wants to prove Bill Belichick wrong. Period. Full stop. Because Bill Belichick wants to be in like year four or year three of the Jimmy Garoppolo Patriots era. Like that's where he wants to be right now. I'm I'm coming around to believing that more and more and more with every single day. Like Garoppolo was their future and he wanted to move on from Tom Brady. And Kraft just wasn't gonna let it happen. You know, given what Tom Brady had meant to this franchise, given how Robert Kraft viewed him as a son, so Belichick had to move in a different direction, which is a very un Belichickian thing to do. Like he had control over this, but you know, Kraft sort of stepped in. And so in the back of Tom Brady's mind, as much as Bill Belichick was responsible for his personal success and where he is right now, he still wants to prove the guy wrong. And this is a guy that has been driven for his entire NFL career by the fact that he was picked 199. And so he is still driven by that. He named his film company 199 Productions. I've joked many times on this show many times that if you get into an elevator with Tom Brady, before you get to your floor, he's telling you that he's does not eat strawberries and that he was picked 199. Like <laughs> that's who he is. That's what has gotten him to where he is. And now he has this added fuel that Bill Belichick gave up on him. And he wants more than anything else to prove Bill Belichick wrong. And don't forget, he went to an offense where everybody under the sun thought he's not a fit for a Bruce Arian system. He's not a fit for a vertical offense. He's got an arm that's an overcooked piece of fettuccine at this point. Like, it's not good enough. He can't run this offense. He wants to put up 5,000. He wants to put up 8,000 yards. He wants to throw for 90 touchdowns. Like, he wants to be thrown it deep on every single snap now just to prove to everybody that he can do it. So, yeah, we're going to we're gonna see the best of Tom Brady this year. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, and it's his offense. It's not Aaron's yeah. offense. There, no. Aaron's is going, uh, look, I'm stu- I'm, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I've yeah. got Tom Brady. Like, Tom, that playbook you want to run, your playbook. Yeah. Like th- this idea of Tom Brady going over um, to pick up, uh, you know, that playbook from the offensive coordinator, left which, no, 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 no. No. He was given Leftwich the playbook. He's like, yeah, yeah, this is what we're running this year. Like, you start naming it whatever you want to name it, but this is what we're running. Yeah, yeah, Leftwich, you learn the playbook, and right. you get the co- the backup quarterbacks ready for this. I yeah. don't even care. Like, I got other things we've got to deal with. This is this is taking a lot off my plate, you know? Yeah. And, I, and Coach has got to be thrilled in that standpoint that they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff to that level. 
So speaking of quarterbacks, you know, or is it your turn actually? Oh no, yeah. Uh, well, you have to chime in on Tom. You chimed in on Tom Brady, right? I, I no, I didn't actually. No, because you asked the question. That's so right. I just took so freaking long asking that damn question. You teed it up. That that yeah. So I I'm totally with this because when you think about in addition to what I just mentioned, you also have the idea that they can operate you know this short passing game and you think about you know it can be a short game and set up the long game so well with all of this it's going to help the blocking because you have two tight ends who can pass protect you, you know who very good and if you want to go three tight ends you still have this guy out of Harvard you know Cameron Brait who's a pretty yeah. darn good red zone threat who was yeah. like their best red zone threat before Godwin came there. Um, you, you know, and Brady's going to use him a little bit here and there, I can imagine. They'll probably sub him in, especially if Howard falters in some way or Gronkowski gets hurt. But when you think about this, understand that Brady was able to support three to four, you know, top players in terms of their production, um, you know, when it comes to you know, high-end producing players. And when you have an offense like this, yeah, I don't see how you can't get a 1,000 yards each, probably somewhere between 1,100 to 1,300 for the two outside receivers, how you can't get somewhere between six to 800 for each of the tight ends, you know? And I'm looking at that as a minimal type of thing. Right there, we're talking about 4,000 yards. You know, just from those four guys. And then you can probably get another thousand yards when you combine the running backs, the Cameron Brait and Scotty Miller and, you know, Tyler Johnson. So, you know, and if you combine, you know, you combine that, you're, you're probably going to get, even if each of those guys get like 250 yards, that's another thousand right there. Um, you know, and you know that the wide the running backs probably going to get more. The tight ends probably going to get a you know close to that. So it's you know this is a very good offense for Brady to be in, and they can do a lot of short passing and do a lot of hurry up. Um, they can also go long with any of those players that are in the twelve personnel set. So this is going to be one of the most exciting offenses available, and I sure hope that we have football so that we can see it. Just please wear your masks so we can see it, people. Yeah. I mean, please. Um, now we're going to talk some more quarterback stuff, um, some evaluation stuff, Matt. We'll kick it off with this. What do you seek from quarterback footwork when you're studying a college prospect? Yeah, I'm. you know, for me, more than anything, I want to see smooth, quick feet that don't come too high off the ground. Um, I want to, to me, when I see that, I think that that tells me that you can build on the step size, you can build on whether, you know, the technique to decelerate and get, you know, and stick the end of that drop and then, um, stop that and then <laughs> be able to, uh, and then be able to move around and sidestep people and, and do all that. So when I'm looking at footwork, you know, I think of Joe Montana, I think of Jake Plummer, I think of Jimmy Garoppolo, um, you know, Tom Brady, Trey Lance, who we watched recently. Yeah. You know, it's even Brock Purdy, who I don't think has good drops and 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 he has some issues. The Iowa State kid has quick feet that stay low to the ground and he can and because he's not extremely fast, one way you can see this is even when he's not doing design footwork. Watching him run in the open field, he's not fast. He doesn't have great acceleration, but he's got very good change of direction skills because 
the feet are low to the ground. He can stop very quickly and make a safety miss who's got a beat on him head up. So when you can make those stop-start moves and cut inside and dip inside like that as a quarterback, even when you're slow, that tells me that the quality of your footwork um, in terms of the inherent base quality is is good enough to develop with. So obviously the best end of it is when all the techniques are smooth, but that common denominator, quick feet aren't very high off the ground um, and and just very smooth and fluid. So there's no herky-jerky bounce. Justin Fields is an example of a guy who kind of jerks with his kind of bounces. And I, I think he actually misses zone drops from linebackers because he can't really see what's going on because he's bouncing around a little bit. And yeah. so, you know, he's a good player. He's a terrific player. But I think that's an issue with him that some other players don't have that he's going to have to work at. How about yeah. you, Mark? Yeah, no, those are all good points. I mean, I kind of look for, like, functional comfort is how I'll kind of term it. Like, I want to see a quarterback that is calm in the pocket, and the quarterback's footwork is often a window into that. Um, because obviously pocket presence and how you manage a pocket is so critical when you play in the position at the college level, when you're extrapolating the ability to translate to the next level. You know, I want to see a quarterback that is able to create movement and create space to make throws, to avoid pressure. You don't have to be Lamar. I mean, I've, I've often maintained that, you know, Tom Brady was one of the best athletes at handling a pocket not because of his athletic ability but because of his footwork and all for all the things you said the, the quick you know sl- quick footwork in the pocket keeping the feet low to the ground moving around sliding away from pressure and creating space but i want to see as the quarterback is doing that the ability to be in that ready position to throw it's one of the things that i loved about joe burrow you know one of the things that i loved about watching him was even when he's doing meshing rpo designs where he's open into his left and his feet are anywhere nowhere near being in the ready position to throw how quickly he would snap those feet back so he could carry out that run fake to your left snap back and throw a slant on right on time in rhythm to the right side of the field which is like tougher than turning a double play in baseball you know, we, I've I've thought about, I've written about for the RSP and elsewhere about, you know, we're seeing more and more baseball players, you know, playing the quarterback position. Your Kyler Murray's, your Russell Wilson's. It's because of that fluid footwork from middle infielders. And so, you know, I want to see: are their feet always under them? Are they always ready to throw? Does it look more like Gardner Minshew or Anthony Gordon? You know, I loved Minshew's footwork in this realm. Anthony Gordon is somebody that was still learning that. I think it sort of hampered Anthony Gordon. So sort of like functional comfort when it comes to the footwork. Like that's what I'm looking for because you can build off of that. But if you don't have that, you're not going to learn it. I love those points, Mark. And I think what both of what our answers kind of underscore is that we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for the foundation and the foundations that you can work with and build on and develop. And, and those are two excellent answers that provide that foundation for people, which is it's not hard and fast, nope. but there are certain things that there's certain guideposts that have to be there, you know, yeah. and that's, and that's basically that. So, okay, listen, we got, uh, let's do one more about, you know, kind of scouting developmental type of stuff. What's harder to develop in a quarterback skill with post snap reads or pre snap reads? I mean, they're they're both difficult in different senses. I mean, pre-snap reads, it's sort of, you know, trying to predict the future. 
you know, trying to be a precog in minority report, like trying to anticipate, like, am I seeing this right? Is it going to be the same when the ball is snapped? So that's tough. But I still think that post snap reads are always going to be tougher because of the movement, because of the explosion around you that is a play beginning. I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, standing in pistol or standing in shotgun or, or lining up under center and looking at everything and saying, okay, well, I can be pretty sure right now with everything we've done, our shifts, our movements, that this is where they're going to be. You know, and if you aren't there, you can sort of get coached up on that film study, out, actually out there doing it. But it's another thing when you're trying to then diagnose and react while you're, okay, I've got to make my five-step drop. Okay, I've got to carry out this mesh fake. Okay, I've got to, you know, work my hot read here because i got to make sure that, you know, if the mic comes, we can't have that blocked. I have to get it to the tight end while I'm trying to figure out if I have to do all this other stuff. The layers upon layers upon layers of things that happen and things that you have to do once the ball is snapped make trying to figure out what is happening on the defensive side of the ball so much harder. So, you know, I think it's post-snap, but what about you? Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's post-snap too. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with, because of all, just like you said, all of those things happening around you, there's usually one or two tells that you might not see that make the adjustment to it being, oh, it's man, it's single man instead of, instead of too high, or it's yeah. too high instead of single man, or, oh, there's a blitz coming off the side that I wasn't looking at because I was looking at something pre-snap that sh- that I thought was a tell, which actually turned out to be a decoy. And now I'm flat on my stomach and right. something's wrong with my ankle, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those deals that, you know, I'll just leave it short. I think by, by far it's post-snap. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's right. I mean, they're both, look, play this position is pretty hard. I mean, yeah. It's pretty hard to play this position. So, um, but somebody that does it at an extremely high level, still to this point in his career, we just had a similar discussion about Tom Brady and what we can expect from him production-wise. But there's another guy in that NFC South which is looking like a pretty solid quarterback division right now, named Drew Brees. And Matt, do you think Drew Brees has another five thousand yard season in him? And do you think he has the personnel to do it this year? Absolutely, he does. And I think that. While people will talk about, you'll often hear these kind of implications that Drew Brees has been aided by Sean Payton and that's why he's as good as he is, which, yes, it's as why he's as good as he is statistically that he's been aided by Sean Payton. It's the reason why Joe Montana, Steve Young, Tom Brady, and and Peyton Manning, and so many other great quarterbacks were as statistically good as they are but it didn't take away from the fact that they were great players. Drew Brees is a great player. Drew Brees is the NFL survivor man, if you ask me. He's that guy that basically when you look at his wide receiving cores of the past years, even with 5,000-yard seasons, you'd see basically you'd see guys that you look at and you'd go, hmm, I'm sorry, I'm joking when I say this, but they could be on the New England Patriots this year, yeah. you know, as guys that like uh, name, name, a, name a guy who was in the slot receiver. Uh, I can't do so. You know, I've kind of been joking that New England's got a bunch of side dishes. Like they're all. Would you like French fries with that? No, I'd right. actually like. I'd actually like a, a burger. No, all we've got is French fries. You can have cheese fries, chili fries, you, you know, sweet potato fries. But we just make fries here. You know, and I think that with Breeze, he's often had that kind of situation where it's either he's got like he's just had incomplete guys. Ted Ginn, you, you know, Robert Meacham. You know, you look back even in recent years, Traquan Smith. You know, it's, it's, you know, it, yes, they had Jared cook last year. That was great. He was helpful. He's getting better as the years go on. It seems like, and Michael Thomas is awesome, 
But Michael Thomas is a slot receiver who can sometimes play on the outside pretty well, but he's not a guy you want strictly on the outside. He's kind of Juju Smith-Schuster in that sense. So when you look at it from that standpoint, adding Emmanuel Sanders? Emmanuel Sanders is an absolutely awesome route runner, and he's the reason why the 49ers offense was able to get over the top and be a threat enough for them to go into the postseason. He was the reason they almost won the Super Bowl. Um, You you know, he was open, you know. (laughs) He was open on that play. Yeah. So to me, Emmanuel Sanders, yeah, he's a little older, but whatever. He can run every route. He can win outside. He's going to open things up for everybody. Add Adam Trotman into the mix a little bit. Maybe it's a minor thing, but I really like Adam Trotman. And I don't think the things he did on that field are going to be blunted by the fact that he's facing higher competition. Maybe for a year, but not for two. I think, And I think he will um, surprise a little bit this year. But just adding Sanders to open up the field and having a healthy Alvin Kamara with Kamara, Cook, Thomas, and Sanders absolutely you know thomas had 1700 yards last year and breeze was on track for 4500 if he didn't get hurt and that's with ginn and traquan smith with sanders and and cooks and with sanders and cook and a healthy kamara shoot man i think he can get 5000 yards easy what do you think i'm absolutely with you and i i want to spend the bulk of my time talking about adam trotman because i think he's look at you All i right. think I think he's going to be a bigger contributor this year. And maybe it's me. Maybe it's the fact I looked into those deep blue eyes down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. And he said everything the right way. And he was such a fun guy to talk to. But, look, I think he – and when they go 12, I mean, it's going to be a situation where you can move Cook around. You can move Kamara around. You can move Trotman around. He's athletic enough where he can run away from most linebackers and safeties, but he can do the inline stuff. I think his learning curve is going to be, you know, a lot shallower than most tight ends because he was asked to do the tight end stuff that a lot of these guys aren't asked to do in the college game. You know, they're asked to line up in the wind and run seams, line up in the slot and run seams. We're not going to ask you to block. We're not going to ask you to make line calls. We're not going to ask you to make exchanges up front or make a deuce call or things like that. Trouble was asked to do that. And you know? he was, and he faced a tight coverage, double coverage, bracket coverage, and he and showed like the, the technique to win. Yeah. I mean, I just remember turning on, it was his game against Valpo, where the first play he runs that post route, runs like the linebacker tries to jam him and he runs him over. They've got him bracketed by both safeties. He has to reach up to make this ridiculous catch. He does it, bounces off one safety, runs over the other, and finally gets dragged out. And then on the next play, they run this like reverse pass to him. The throw is ridiculously off target. He pulls it in for a touchdown. It was the proverbial put the pen down moment. I just I don't need to see anymore. This guy is fantastic. And so, look, I, I think you add him. The Sanders was, acquisition was one of the best signings, I think, of this entire offseason. Yeah. You know, because they needed another weapon. They needed a running mate. You know, the, the Robin to the Michael Thomas Batman. They got it. Yeah. Look, we need two Tampa Bay New Orleans games, okay? We need to. And we're set to get one right at the start of the season. And by golly, kids, I want to see it. We need three, actually. Seriously. If we could get, yeah, an a- an NFC championship game between those two teams. Yes. Oh? <laughs> yes. We need three. Yeah. We need three. Okay. So, all right. What about, what about Teddy Bridgewater? You know, he was a saint. He had one of the lowest yards per um, attempt you know, rates last year. Of course, he hadn't played in a while, really, in a true NFL game um, because 
the Jets the Jets didn't want him, even though he was probably their best quarterback. And he had and before that he dealt with his uh you know, with a leg injury that was yeah. nearly cost him his leg and his life. Now he's in Carolina. When you look at Teddy Bridgewater, you know, listen, he can move around the pocket really well, even with even after the injury. He's very good at seeing the field, you know. He's he's a very good calm leader, you know. Players love him, you know. Is he Joe Burrow without the deep accuracy? I think he's as close as they were going to find without going to the top of the draft board and drafting Joe Burrow. You know, I think, you know, one thing that we can't overstate is in this current climate, it might be difficult for a new quarterback to come into a new set and to be asked to sort of learn the offense, you know, other than, you know, Tom Brady, you know, in his workouts and what he's been doing. Like, it, it's hard to, you know, without OTAs, without mini camps and things like that, to really sort of get on the same page. He's going to know this playbook, right? Like, Joe Brady's LSU playbook was ripped from the Sean Payton, you know, air raid slash West Coast slash, like, mesh school of thought that he was putting together that Teddy Bridgewater was running. And so the familiarity is going to be there. I think, you know, one of the things that I love to see – Let's rewind the clock a bit. When Breeze went down and it was like four to five games was the expectation that he was going to miss. Most people, myself included, wrote, well, Bridgewater, if he can keep them at 500, you know, the Saints will be able to like still make a run here once Breeze comes back. And what did they do, Matt? The producers in my year reminded me they won five games. And it wasn't like Bridgewater was letting the world on fire, but what was he doing? He was checking the ball down. Like you look at that first start he had at Seattle, notoriously tough place to play. They're checking the ball down in the rain. He's being smart with the football. He's making the right reads. He's getting the ball out on time and in rhythm. That's going to fit with what they want to do. That's going to fit with Joe Brady's like five-man protection schemes and getting the ball out quickly and attacking horizontally at times. And yes, does he have the vertical accuracy of Joe Burrow? No. But will they need that? You don't need all of it. You just need a bit of it to keep defenses honest, to hit on some shot plays over the top. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see this. I think this could this pairing could absolutely work, but I'm just an idiot with a microphone in front of him. Matt, what about you? <laughs> well, from one idiot to another, I mean, <laughs> listen, you know, what's interesting is what I would like to know and is how many of the games that, um, you know, Bridgewater played were on the road because I seem to recall – he was on the road in L.A. and in Seattle, um, and the, Chicago too. What's that? Chicago as well. Chicago. That was another one too. So, so there are at least three of those games that were on the road. At least half of them. And we know Drew Brees hasn't been great on the road. At least when you look at from a Vegas standpoint, right. um, you, you know. And so the fact that Bridgewater was able to get wins on the road, that's a big deal for a for a young quarterback. Um, yeah, I mean, the deep accuracy has always been the issue with Teddy. Like, as much as I think you and I both liked him, he's a fantastic leader, you know, and I'll just state this again, given the, considering the um, the climate that we're in, you know, the NFL bagged him for his leadership mm-hmm. at, over and over and over again. GMs bagged on him for his leadership. And I, and I, I talked about this, you know, several times saying that they were wrong. And that they they were making up reasons to basically not to have to draft him in the first round because they just didn't want a dark skin quarterback 
leading dark skinned black quarterback leading them as a first round pick. And they had there were probably there were other reasons in addition to that, but that was part of the reason. And when, because they made up false rationale about that. And why is that false? Because for weeks before this test ever came out, and the test never really fully came out, for weeks I had someone tell me who worked in the NFL that there are these military-style leadership tests where they basically interrogate these guys in the room that they pay lots of money to test leadership and efficacy um, in terms of accountability, in terms of ownership, in terms of ability to deal with stress, all sorts of things. Teddy Bridgewater had some of the highest scores, and when it came to accountability and dealing with pressure, he had the highest scores of any of the t- the quarterbacks in that class who had that test taken. Um, and most of them had that test. Like multiple teams gave that test to those quarterbacks. Um, and he had, and it was, and I saw the grades. I mean, like, so it was ridiculous to hear what people were saying about him. So. When you look at Teddy Bridgewater, the leader, it's pretty much bared out because everyone said he's a great leader. So when you look at it from this perspective, my biggest issue with him really is, um, you know, the defense, like you said, defense is, defense is problematic. I think you can have a good year, but teams are going to be able to sit on his routes a little bit more. But yeah. you do have guys who are quick twitch, who get open fast. He's going to be able to find them fast. They're great after the catch. I think he's going to have a good season but it's not going to be a great season. It's not going to be like a fantasy caliber starter season. I think it's going to be more of a guy that you go, he helped the Carolina Panthers stay in games and maybe win some games, but he wasn't a dominant force. Right. So listen, we got three left here. Um, Tout your rookie sleeper candidate for the 2020 NFL season. I mean, we've, we've, talked about a couple of guys i will reiterate you know adam trotman yes you know, I, I think i think devin ucsc like you mentioned earlier i think is somebody certainly to watch tyler johnson uh guy we haven't mentioned but is also you know we mentioned jonathan taylor how he's going early in some drafts ceh for the kansas city chiefs i mean you want to talk about a perfect fit like we just got done talking about the joe brady offense and here's a guy that was the running back in that system now he's going to andy reed and eric Bieniemy. And I mean, like those two guys needed another fun toy, right? <laughs> like really? Yeah. But we let it happen. So yeah. So, so so those are some guys. The other guy I did want to mention, talk a little bit more about is Denzel Mims. And it wasn't that Denzel Mims was my favorite wide receiver in this group. You know, he was in the top, you know, tier of guys. Uh, but I think the landing spot for him is as ideal as it might get. Um, when you're talking about with Adam Gase, um, and you can say what you want about Adam Gase, and I'm certainly not the biggest Adam Gase fan, but he can design some stuff schematically. You can talk about Adam with Sam Darnold, and he's a guy that is still a, an aggressive quarterback and willing to take some throws downfield. You look at what's going to be around him with, you know, Brashad Perryman is going to be obviously one of the receivers and Jamison Crowder. And if they get Christopher Herndon, I think that's a nice 11 personnel package that he's going to slide into. And will he won't be asked to do things he's not ready to do. He will be asked to work downfield, vertical stems, work back to the sideline at times, and be our like boundary X type of guy because we'll let the other guys do the S and the Z and the Y and all that kinds of stuff. And I think he's in a very good situation where he's going to be asked to be the vertical guy that they lost to Robbie Anderson. That's a that's one of those scenarios where we mentioned earlier, you know, when you're looking at rookies, given the time we're living in, if they're going to be in a position where they're just going to be asked to do what they do best, you could trust them 
And I think this is one of those guys. Nice. Very nice. I like it. And I'm a Mims fan. I'm a big Mims fan. So yeah. it's nice to hear some optimism regarding the schematic standpoint, you know, with Gase. And I think you're right. Schematically and fitting with Darnold, that's great. I worry about the locker room, but that's something you can't ever really know yeah. or control. Um, so if Mims is a guy who steadily learned the way he did at Baylor when he didn't have to be great against press and he really started to get good at it, that's kind of a nice sign that he's a willing worker. So I, I'm I'm optimistic there. Troutman is probably my guy, and I haven't talked much about him for a reason. But right. yes, yes, <laughs> Troutman is like, Troutman is fantastic. I've like been waiting, like even for, so the, those of you who read my football guys articles, I haven't even mentioned him there because I've been slowly waiting to bump him up because I didn't want to make it an early thing. I kind of wanted it to be a, a you pay for this kind of thing, but I'll have to find somebody else, you know, yeah. to, to do that with. Um, a guy who is my sleeper, and I've talked about him a lot, and I like him, and and you guys know it, is Quintez Cephas. Um, yeah. Just because Matt Stafford loves to throw the ball into tight windows, can do it extremely well, he just needs a receiver who can handle it. Well, there's your guy. Quintez Cephas is basically a slower Golden Tate um, with a little bit more um, technique with his hands, um, you, you know, which is a good thing. And so I'm I'm very uh, I'm excited to see whether he can beat Geronimo Allison off the bat with this kind of crazy offseason we have. Uh, it's less likely, but as the season wears on, he's probably going to get his way, make his way into games, and it's going to be hard to get that guy off the field. I bet, I bet. So all right, we got two left. So Mark, what are you watching on TV these days? I'm not. I'm not really a huge TV guy. I come to a lot of things late. Like I had been watching the handmaid's tale and man in the high castle. And I had to stop. <laughs> I had to, I had to stop that. I'm going to laugh. Um, Cause I'm going to cry. All yeah. right. Um, but those of you that follow me on the bird app, you know, one of my sort of, it's not an unwritten rule. It's a written rule. It's the scrubs gif auto between. And I've, I love the show when it aired. And recently, the two main characters, the main stars of that show, Zach Raff and Donald Faison, have released a podcast, Real Friends, Fake Doctors. Well, what they And they released it during quarantine. Um, and what they're doing is they're going through episode by episode. They're rewatching and they're, they're doing a show. Each episode's like 45 minutes long. Um, and they've had some of the actors and the show's creator, Bill Lawrence, come on. And the podcast, the podcast is fantastic. These two, you know, they're, they're, they're like best friends now based on that show. Um, and so as part of listening to that show, I've started rewatching the episodes and I started with season one, like two weeks ago. Um, and it's amazing, Matt, in the first couple of episodes of that show, they're talking about race. You know, they're talking about, you know, Donna Faison, African-American. There's a sh an episode in the first season where, you know, they save the life of a cameraman, like when they're out, like at lunch. And then the hospital then wants to use Donald Faison's doctor character as like the face of a PR campaign for the hospital. And they've got posters up like, you know, you know, what's your EKG, G? You know, and it shows this African-American doctor. And they're talking about things like that. They're talking about, you know, healthcare as a business. And with the chief of staff, when he finds out patients don't have insurance, he wants them kicked to the curb immediately. And so you have the resident, you know, played by John C. McGinley, the great character actor, like ordering procedures for patients that have died 
because they had insurance. So we can then give that procedure to somebody that didn't have insurance so we can save their life. And so here we are 20 years later talking about, you know, healthcare, you know, as a, you know, as an industry, as something that isn't just a basic sort of right, you know, and they were talking about 20 years ago. And so I, I've been watching that. It's amazing how that show sort of has sort of stood the test of time. And, you know, there are even, you know, they. I just listened to an episode today. They had a, a break where they did like a special episode with obviously the two stars of the show, Zach Braff and Don Faison, and the show's creator, Bill Lawrence, and Sarah Chalk, one of the other stars, because they had to address the fact that they had three instances where they used blackface in the show. And they had to talk about it. I think it was it was a important thing to hear because they were like, look, we thought we were doing all these progressive things, like talking about race and, and talking about health care and stuff like that. We were ignorant of what we were doing and we thought it was innocent and it wasn't. And then the stars talked about how, you know, they should have spoke up. And I thought it was a really powerful episode, obviously, in the sort of moment we're living. So that's what I'm watching now. I'm like rewatching Scrubs. Um Partly because it's a comedy and it's not the man in the hot castle and it's not the handmaid's tale. So yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. What about you? Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I, you know, my wife tends to be watching a lot of TV and when she does watch the, when she's watching a lot of TV, she tends to rotate shows. So she, she rotates between game of Thrones, Mad Men and, um, and the office and basically go. So I'm usually catching one of those three, but when I, when I get done working and I tend to work late, um, and it's like four or five o'clock in the morning and I, and I need to just kind of, you know, relax for an hour to get before I go, go to sleep. I've been watching Gordon Ramsay's, um, cooking show on Amazon prime. Um, wow. and you know, you think about Gordon, a lot of people think about Gordon Ramsay and his like hell's kitchen and the whole angry yeah. blustery, like asshole kind of attitude that he has. And I, th- and to me, perp, personally and my wife and I are kind of the same way like if you don't have a little asshole in you in terms of the way that you deal that you deal in in some way or another then you're probably not being a real person because like everybody everybody has that has that bad mood bad moments you know they and being willing to show their real side you you know so I like Gordon Ramsay and I like him even more watching him doing these one you know these you know he's just the single focus talking about what kind of equipment you should have, what kind of ingredients you should pick, different little tips and t- trades. And, he, and he's going through 100 recipes that he thinks are just quick and easy to make that will raise your level of cooking. And so it's really packed with a ton of information. I feel like I should tape them and like I could arrange them into like, like I have a video editor. Why not tape right. some of these and like arrange them into different orders and take notes and do different things. But it's fun because it's like, I find myself rearranging my kitchen. I find myself looking at things and, you know, re refiguring how I use spices or how I'm going to buy and store spices, you know, and, and also just little techniques that I've either learned before, but forget. And he's reminded me of, or things I've never even considered. You right. Know? And, and, he's- He's got, I've got over my shoulder here, one of his cookbooks and it's fantastic. And it's, it's organized by like, you know, what he calls like posh dining, which is like when you go to like make beef Wellington or like quick and easy when it's like, if you want to make like pancakes for your kids, yeah, like it, it covers every, it's, it's, it was a gift from my mom and dad actually. And I still, I've got like paper clipped recipes in there, like stuff that I've done, stuff that I want to try, like his English breakfast recipe. I love English breakfast. Um, my cardiologist doesn't, but you know, it, it, it's, it's fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm, 
I I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. He's he's great, and it's funny because like it. My wife, as I don't know if I've joked about this so often, but see, my wife, since she's so good at building things and being able to, you know, I mean, like basically the the tiler, the stonemason, the the person who does flooring, the you know, the painter, the drywaller, all all those people, they see stuff and they ask for cards of the people who did the work, and I'm like, it's my wife, you right. know, she burns my pots, like literally cannot boil water without. She's burnt five pots of mine trying to boil water because she can't focus on one thing at a time um, when it comes to cooking because it bores the hell out of her. But the one thing that she can make is a really good steak and it's because she used Gordon Ram. She learned Gordon Ramsay's recipe, and that's the only thing. In fact, like I make a pretty, I, I make a pretty good steak myself, and I like my steak more. But well, I like my steak more out of ego. But like to be honest, her steaks is good if not better than mine, and she prefers her steak to mine. So like even when she's like not feeling you know, up to doing something there. I'm like, you want me to make you the steak that's in there? And she's like, no, I'd rather make it. And I laugh because it's the only thing, it's the only thing I cook. And I'm not like a great cook, but I'm pretty good. And, you know, and, and you know, there's some things I make that are really good. But my, my wife's like, my, my wife's like, that's the one thing my wife will look at me and, and say, no, I'd rather make it. Like it's the yeah. exception. So it's funny. Well, listen, Matt Harmon got engaged. He Congratulations to Matt and Bree. I think it's Bree or Bry. I don't remember. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. I Bree, Bry. It's yeah, but yeah. Yeah. But well, you know, congratulations to the to the soon to be Harmons. Um, you know, we're both married. We've been married for a while. Yeah. We have kids. What's your advice to him and other couples headed for marriage? Yeah, and this is a fascinating question. And I I, I will sort of officially or unofficially use a timeout for this. Um, because if we've learned anything over the past three months, like when you were going to make that commitment to somebody, like more than anything else, people have that old expression, like, you know, make sure you marry your best friend or whatever. That's certainly true. But make sure that the person that you're marrying is somebody that you can eat wax to, you know, that you can just be with, you know, for extended periods of time and it's somebody that you know has seen the best of you that has seen the worst of you and has still come through that being like yeah this is somebody i want to spend my the rest of my life with you know you know because it's it's not always easy you know there will be ups and there will be downs and there will be dark times and there will be rough patches um and you know my wife and i we like we like never ever fight like it's just this weird thing we like don't like even when one of us starts to get close to perhaps starting a fight the other just like starts laughing because we just we just don't i mean it's it's weird and we're insanely lucky in that way and even through now into our what like third fourth month of being together as a family of four every single day 24 hours a day with little to no breaks we're still that way and it's a testament to the fact that you know we've sort of found each other in that sense and you know if there's a piece of advice to give and it's so cliched but it's so true it's listen like actually listen and it's tougher in this day and age and i've done it myself when my wife would be saying something and I'm staring at Twitter or my mind is elsewhere and it can be viewed as like so condescended and disrespectful. 
if that person you're talking to, their mind is obviously elsewhere. And if you do it over a period of time, it is going to wear down at the fabric of the relationship. So like legitimately listen, it will pay dividends because if you actually listen to what that person is saying, come holidays, come birthdays, you might've learned something that they might really appreciate. And if you can show, like, I remember my wife was talking about like, you know, some kind of like, you know, it was like a pen that she really wanted. And she like mentioned it like offhand in a conversation in like, you know, August. And there it was under the tree come Christmas. And she was blown away that I was like paying attention. And in, that will, you know, show that you are there and invested. And so like being there, be invested, you know, go all, all in with the chips. Um, it will pay dividends for you because three years later, when you're locked up with each other for four straight months under a quarantine due to a global pandemic and you don't want to strangle each other by the end of it, you'll see why. So, yeah, I mean, again, but Matt, congratulations, man. Matt is one of the legitimate, like, great people in the football media space. One of the best people out there, period. And he's somebody that is a true success story has gone on to, like, to see him skydiving with Nate Boyer. It's he's in a NASCAR car, like doing laps at like Daytona or wherever that was. I mean, he's legitimately living the dream. I couldn't be happier for him. Um, all the best, man. Yeah, I'm certainly thrilled for Matt. And and you could tell from the moment I remember the first time talking with him when he revealed that he was dating her, dating his his fiance, that uh you could just tell on the conversation. When you've been married and you meet someone and you knew and you can hear their voice, you know they they know. And it's like, because it's like, when it happens, it's unlike any other situation you've been in. Even if you've been in a situation that was really great, um, and it, it still blows it out of the water in terms of all the factors that are there. So, you know, I love your advice about, you know, obviously about listening. It's such an important key. And I think the root thing to that is respect. Like, you really have to understand what respect is, how to respect that person as a person, not a man, not a woman, as a person. Just like, you know, treat them how you would want to be treated. And, you, and when you do that and you really are paying attention and you respect the fact that they have intelligence, that they have talents, that they have gifts, that they have feelings, that they have insecurities, that they have, you know, that they have flaws, you know, and you respect the fact that everyone does. And it, because when you really love someone, you, I, I think you love them for their, their faults as well. Like you understand that they have them and you even kind of like them, even when they drive you crazy at the moment. Unlike you, Mark, like my wife and I argue all the time, but we argue for sport. Like, I would joke that my wife and I, if we were animals, we would be two dogs and she would trot over with a bone and put it in front of me, wag the tail, and I'd go to grab it and she would try and snatch it away yeah. and we'd have tug of war. And that would be, for us, that's just fun. You know, some of our friends, like, I'll joke with this because Cecil, Cecil stayed here a couple of times with us and, and we love having him here. But the first time Cecil and I um, hung out with my wife and my daughter and we went out to eat, 
my wife and daughter and I were all kind of getting into the whole kind of thing that we do, which is kind of taking jabs at each other, not in a passive aggressive way, not in a mean way, but just kind of, and Cecil looked shocked. He looked like a deer in headlights. Gene was there too. Gene just started throwing singers, which was kind of fun because it was like, you know, Gene's the quiet one. You watch him on the audible. Cecil's a little bit, you know, but in, in real life to tell on Cecil, Cecil's a little bit quieter, a little bit more of an introvert and Gene is too, but Gene's someone that like, Oh yeah, he'll, he'll bring it there and he laughed because we joke that we married the same we have the same relationship with our wives you know essentially um but you know listening and respecting and knowing that appreciating the person that they have flaws and understanding that and being okay with that and 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 understanding i think that's important because my wife and i occasionally argue and it sucks arguments always suck but it's never anything that's like it's not awful in the way because we get it resolved, you know, looking for resolution and being, being respectful to one another really helps with that because yeah, you, you know, for an example, I mean, you talked about living in a tight space. I mean, hell, before we moved last year, we had to sell our house during football season and I was doing shows in a, in a basically an extended stay that was uh, this room I'm in now is about, is about two thirds of the size of the room of the place we were staying. There's a little bedroom in the kitchenette. My wife had to work there. I had to work there. I was working on a couch and we were in each other's face for three months. And the first day we moved the, when we moved, I had the flu and I had to move. We had to move stuff together. Her and I in the rain with me having the flu. And I like literally like, I mean, hard to say this, but literally, literally got up out of bed after throwing up, literally got out of bed my wife had told me to stop and I was like, no, I can't let you do this by yourself. I'm like, this is crazy. We got like literally 200 boxes to load into this U-Haul. And I started loading the boxes. And after about five minutes, I went into the bathroom, threw up and then came back out and was like, if I stand in the truck and you put, you bring them here, I'll arrange them up here. That that's do that. And I was literally dead by the time, you know, close yeah. to, you know, by the time we got there after that, we then drove to, we drove, we got everything where we needed unpacked. We drove to the, the place and we had one car at this point because my other car got told and we decided to wait because of all the hot sale and stuff. And we had one car and it was a car that my wife usually is great at picking cars. She didn't pick a great car this time because it looked like a great deal. And it was something that was like, it just needed a lot more repairs and it broke down literally oh. like she limped it into the into the the, the the extended stay the california wire wildfires took place and the house that we thought we were selling wasn't may not have they thought it might not close on time or indefinitely because the office of the real estate company that was handling it was in the city where the wildfires took place oh, God. so i'm sick i come back in the rental car get into the house didn't want to move anyway like at this point you know because it was in the middle of the season worried about whether i was even going to get good internet to be able to do my job to study film and my wife has to tell me that the car's broken down and like we and then that the wildfires burn and we don't know whether when we're going to get out of here and we and by the way we ended up staying there two months longer than we did so we stayed four months in this extended stay that first day was the worst day everything else was easy it wasn't a big deal but what made it easier too was the fact that my wife knew that like I'm going to get pissed off about this stuff. I'm going to be angry and that I could communicate well enough to be like I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the situation. 
but I need to be angry and I don't feel like I don't feel like talking about this because I'm just going to be an ass. Like that's yeah. that's where I'm at. And if you're okay with me being an ass, then I'm going to unload and just be this way and just understand it's not about you. All right, can you deal with that? And she's like, "Yeah, okay." Or no, because I'm tired. I'm like, well, then we don't have anything to talk about tonight, but I'm sure I'll be in a better mood within the coming days. And everything turned out fine. It t- right. all worked out great. And we're both that way. Occasionally, you just have to give the person their space to be their worst, as long as yeah. their worst is respectful of you. You yeah. know, as long as you're being respectful of the other person, let them be at their worst. And if you can't live with them being at their worst and you knew this before, then you're not going to be able to change people. And that's the other, that's the last thing I'll say. You're not, if you're marrying someone with the hope that they will change now that you've gotten them to the altar, then you are making a fucking mistake. Like you can don't, you're marrying them for who they are. And, and really what they could be is a bonus. It's, it's, it's who they are now that you're marrying. And, be, and if you love who they are now, then you're going to be just fine. If you love and respect who they are now. No, so. it, it, to put it into football terms, it's a floor, not the ceiling. Yes, exactly. That's a great point. So, you know, listen, we hope that you like the floor that this episode was. <laughs> <laughs> because Mark and I certainly have higher ceilings on certain days, good good and bad. I'd say his ceiling's higher than mine. Oh, but no, no, listen, no, no, don't. You can't go... say that, my friend. <laughs> but we can, but but listen, you can find Mark Schofield, um, at, you, you know, at the at the USA Wire. I can never say that. I think touchdown of USA wire. Touchdown Wire. Just, USA just Today, I'm so old. Follow, follow him on, on Twitter, app, Today Wire, t- you know, Touchdown Wire. Doug Farrar, you know, great yeah, guy. Yeah. We love him. Congratulations on your marriage, yes, Doug. Congratulations, Doug. Absolutely. On your, you know, very happy for you. And to all of you out there who are engaged, you know, hopefully we didn't talk you out of anything. And if we did, congratulations on having a realization. Um, right. You know, and uh, we love you. And we are and we appreciate the love that you give us. And uh, by the RSP. Because by the RSP. you know that that's helpful. That's helpful to a couple guys in these that helps rooms. People. So all right, thanks so much.